I did want to tell you that um, everything I'm teaching this morning and so much more is in the Life of Christ Volume 8 book. If you'd be interested, I brought extra of them, and they're back on the table. <clears throat> in two-hour sessions, I cannot give you all the resurrection evidence and proofs that are out there. I would love to. <clears throat> I try to squeeze in as much as I can. But Volume 8 is all about uh, the resurrection and his 11 post-resurrection appearances, at least 11 times he, um, he let people see him in his resurrected body. Are you enjoying the food? Thank you all for bringing the food. It was just marvelous, so much of it. I had my, one of my daughters fix me a plate so I can enjoy it more thoroughly later. I hope she made sure to get the dessert table. <laughs> You're on it right now? Okay. I know some had to leave because, again, the kids got out of school, but um, this will be, I told you, it will be on the podcast, right, Natalie, wherever, yes, pretty soon, as quickly as she can get it on there. So <clears throat> if you want to tell your friends, I do have a business card back there on the table that gives you the address of the po podcast, and also um, half of my books now are on Amazon.com if you want to get any of the books through them. Um, you just go on Amazon.com. And I sure would appreciate it if some of you would take the time, if you have an, how many have an Amazon account? Yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do without Amazon. <laughs> but anyway, if you could just type in Caldwell Commentaries, and then there's some of my books that have zero reviews, because I am a nobody, talk about nobodies. And so people are hesitant to buy a book that they don't know anything about. So if you had a chance, ever have a chance or remember to do it, could you give me, I don't want a one star or a two star, I want a five star review. Just say, all you have to do is say, yeah, this book is great, even though I never read it. <laughs> no, don't lie. But um, I need some reviews on some of those books. They have zero, zero reviews. So anyway, and I'm not trying to make money. I make absolutely nonprofit. By the way, there is an offering plate on that purple where the sign-up sheet for the, um, your email there is a uh, box if you if you feel so led to give to the ministry. We do have to pay for the um, nursery workers, and we still have ongoing expenses, believe it or not. I could tell you one really horrible one because I got sued. You know, they're trying to cancel Christians, and I had to take down my YouTube videos, and then all my podcasts were labeled E. Uh, one lady, uh, Darla Blackwell, is she not here today? Is she? She sent me an um, email and said, did you know all your podcast messages have an E on them? And I said, an E? What's that for? Excellent. <laughs> no, it's for ex explicit. It's like getting an R rating on, a, I guess, a movie. No. So, you know, that would prevent people from listening to them if it's explicit. Whoa, I wonder what she talks about, porn or something. It's probably because I said marriage should be between a man and a woman or who knows what, you know. Oh, whatever. So, the book? What book? Oh, Life of Christ 8, the last one. Volume 8 on the resurrection, yeah. Um, anyway, so... I got sued and I had to pay, but uh, she was able to figure out how to remove that E, right? Yes, but you know, they're after Christians. They want to silence us, so um, we've got to do what we got to do while we can. <laughs> Who knows when we'll be shut down. All right, this is um, part two, Resurrection Reality, part two. And let me get my little remote in my hand, and away we go. 
So, whatever a person chooses to believe regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, one thing that everyone must admit, even the unsaved people, is that something very unusual did play, take place that Sunday morning, three days after his crucifixion. And whatever it was, it had enough of an impact to change the course of history. It even marked a change in our calendars from B.C., you know, before Christ, and Anno Domini, after, I always say after death, even though it doesn't stand for that. For another thing, whatever happened that resurrection morning, I don't ever call it Easter. I don't like the word Easter. I know, I'm sorry, some of you use Easter. But Easter is named after a false goddess, Ishtar. So I, um, so I always call it resurrection morning. Um, it, whatever it was, it was so dramatic, that event, that it caused a radical turnaround in the lives of Jesus' apostles and others. But we will focus on them primarily because from that time forward, they all held, and I'm talking about Matthias, who replaced Judas, and the apostle Paul even, who once persecuted and killed Christians. But uh, they, they so believed in whatever happened that morning that they held tenaciously to their faith in Christ to their own deaths. Um, men will die, you know, men will die for something that they believe to be true. We have that in a lot of the Islamic jihadists, you know, that will kill themselves for something they believe is true, even if it isn't. But who will die for what they know is a lie? Who will die for a lie? <laughs> if the disciples knew that they had stolen Jesus' body and then lied about seeing the empty grave clothes and lied about seeing him resurrected, and if they were able to get some 500 other people to lie about seeing him resurrected, would they then have wasted their lives preaching a lie and going to their deaths for that lie? No. So what were the evidences? Um, what were the evidences presented by the Lord to convince the apostles and other early believers of the fulfillment of his much-repeated third-day resurrection prophecy? What were the um, evidences? They were, number one, the wrappings in the tomb, number two, the resurrection from the tomb. There were 11 such post-resurrection appearances that are recorded in the scripture, even though there likely were more. And some of those post-resurrection appearances of Christ were when he was teaching his men probably for days at a time. But 11 are recorded. He appeared in his glorified body to a wide variety of witnesses, women, men. He appeared at various times of the day. Uh, he appeared in both Judea and Galilee. He appeared out in the open. He appeared behind locked doors. He appeared on the road to Emmaus. He appeared on the uh, Mount of Olives. He also appeared privately to individuals, such as his half-brother James, and to Peter, and to Mary Magdalene. And he also appeared before multitudes. At one time, 500 people saw him. And we also have the biblical record 
of the responses and the reactions of some of these people when they first saw him in his resurrected body. And one of those is Mary Magdalene, which we are going to discuss in this lesson, the second part of this lesson on the resurrection reality. But before we get to her, we want to look at the apostles' response to hearing. Now, these are the 11, not yet Matthias, the 11. What was their response when they heard for the first time the completed gospel message about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? That message was delivered to them by who? Women. Two groups of women. The first group that went to the tomb and the second group. Remember, they're both told to go quickly and tell the disciples. So they heard that message from two different groups of women who shared with them their conversations with the angels, the news of the empty tomb, the news about the empty grave clothes that they saw inside the tomb, and one group of women even saw the resurrected Christ on their way to the men. He appeared to them. Remember he said, all hail. I always thought that was fun. You like to say hail. Where do you hail from? Well, I thought, you know what? I always made fun of Terry saying all hail or where do you hail from? But Jesus said all hail <laughs> to the women. <laughs> That's just a funny thing to say to them. Um, so they heard all this. The, the apostles heard all this. And then later on, when Mary Magdalene sees him at the tomb, the second time she, well, actually it's the third time she goes out to the tomb, she also comes back and gives them a report on having seen the resurrected Christ. It's a much different message she gives them than the first one when she talked to Peter and John, which was a false message. So anyway, what was the response? What was the reaction of the men who left everything to follow Jesus for some three years because they sincerely believed he was the long-awaited Messiah? What was their response to the testimony of the women? Well, shockingly, and we're talking about the apostles, okay? Their response was one of, praise for that. Anyway, um, what was their response? It was one of disrespect and disbelief. Now, why in the world do I say disrespect? Well, because Luke 24, 11 says that the women's message, this is a quote, seemed to the disciples as idle tales, and the men believed them not. Now, I got to tell you, the Greek word for idle tales is liros, liros, and it means nonsense. It's a medical term that is used to speak of the, the wild talk of someone who is delirious. And Vincent's word studies translates liros as silly talk. So the disciples thought that the women were delirious with silly talk, with nonsense, with idle tales. They thought, okay, these women, their emotions are playing tricks on them, on their minds. And I think it's absolutely hilarious that these guys are going to reap what they sowed. <laughs> because it wouldn't be too long before they would encounter the same reaction when they first shared the gospel message on the day of Pentecost. Because what did the people think of them? 
They thought they had too much wine early in the morning. <laughs> they thought they were delirious, that they were out of their minds, that they were drunk propagators of nonsense and idle tales. So you see what comes around, goes around comes around? I encountered a, a similar reaction when I first shared the gospel, didn't you? When I shared it with my parents, it was like, oh, no, she'll get over it. <laughs> Well, 50 years later, I still haven't gotten over it. <laughs> so the disciples' response to the women gives us insight into the general attitude of men toward women in those days. A woman's testimony, did you know this, was seldom allowed in the Jewish court of law. But the disciples should have been different. They should have been different having been with Jesus. Who lifted up ladies more than anyone ever has? Jesus. He greatly honored women. And, um, and these guys weren't just receiving the testimony of one woman, but of many women. Some of the women were their mothers. <laughs> Think about that. They were. And they, they were godly women. And their testimonies all agreed. It wasn't what, like one woman said this and another woman said that, and they, ah, they don't match. No, all their testimonies were the same. The men should have believed them, especially... When the women reminded them, as the women had been reminded by the angels, of the Lord's own oft-repeated third-day resurrection prophecy. Wouldn't you think that the men would at least have run to the tomb to investigate the situation? After all, you know, it was the third day. It was the third day. And they reminded him. Remember what he said? On the third day, he'd rise again. So don't, I, I don't understand that. But they didn't. And it's just another bit of irony that Peter and John <laughs> went running off to the tomb when they heard a false message about a robbed body, whereas the others did not go to the tomb when they heard the true message of a resurrected body. Now, a common argument of skeptics from skeptics of Christ's resurrection is that his disciples so strongly believed that Jesus would rise from the dead that after his death, they deluded themselves. There's another conspiracy theory called the uh, telepathy theory and the seance theory. So all these, that's in the book too, the Life of Christ 8 book, all these different theories and how you can refute them so easily. But that uh, they somehow... Uh, deluded themselves to believe that he was alive and that he did appear to them and that he, he even ate with them. So it was all a delusion, though. And the major flaw, however, with that theory is that it contradicts the facts. The apostles did not anticipate Jesus' resurrection at all. They didn't even remember his predictions of his resurrection because obviously they had categorized them into either the non-literal category or the, okay, you know, end of time, long-term category. So even when later on, Sunday afternoon, the two Emmaus Road disciples also reported to them that they saw Jesus alive, it says in Mark 16, 13, neither believed they them. So they didn't believe any of the women's testimony. And then they had the two 
well, it could have been a man and his wife, the Emmaus Road disciples, I don't know, but they didn't believe their testimony. And then to top it all off, even when the glorified Lord himself appeared before them later that day, Resurrection Sunday, in the upper room, what did they think? That it was his spirit, not him body. You know, the, the Jews had a belief that the spirit stayed around for three days. And that before it went, you know, wherever it went. <laughs> um, so they thought it was his spirit. They did not believe it was him bodily rec uh, resurrected. So the initial unbelief of the apostles is one of the strongest evidences <laughs> that Jesus... So the unbelief of the apostles is one of the strongest, the initial unbelief is one of the strongest evidences that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. If such reluctant to believe men became so thoroughly persuaded that they preached his resurrection, even in the face of persecution and martyrdom, then it must be true. It must be true. If even those guys came to believe it, it's got to be true. So there was a lot of activity going on Sunday morning. A lot, to say the least. There were a lot of people making trips back and forth to the tomb. Angels from heaven had traveled to the tomb. Roman soldiers stationed there as guards ran from the tomb as fast as their legs could carry them, some going to the chief priests and some going we don't know where with their report. Um, and then there were two different groups of women who went to the tomb, and Mary Magdalene seemingly ran ahead of the other the first group. Then she jumped to the false conclusion about what she saw, and she turns around and they all had to be really healthy because they do a lot of running. She, she runs quickly back to get Peter and John and give them her false message. And then the two women's, when she's off getting them, the two women groups come, you know, sequentially to the tomb. But unlike Mary, both of those women's group leave with great joy, great joy in their hearts. They heard the message of the resurrection straight from God's holy messengers. They saw the evidence for themselves. So then they hurry off to find the apostles to share the truth with them. And one group of the women um, met Jesus on the way. But when they met Jesus on the way, he had already met Mary Magdalene. So he, Mary was the first one, and then the second ones were the group of women. Anyway, that's why I made the handout, so you can see all the sequence. So meanwhile, Peter and John also had gone hastily to the tomb, saw it was empty, and left. And then shortly after their departure, Mary Magdalene, now, for some reason, she decided to return to the tomb. Maybe she realized, you know, maybe she got to John and Peter. She decided, you know what, I forgot, I forgot to do something. I forgot to look inside the tomb. Or maybe, maybe she thinks, I got to go back because maybe I can find somebody there who knows where his body is. Maybe there's someone there, maybe the gardener is there, and I can ask him if he knows where they took his body. However, the real reason Mary Magdalene returned to the tomb was because the Lord was drawing her there. The Lord was drawing her because he had sovereignly chosen her 
to be the first person to see him resurrected. Let's look at John 20, verses 11 to 16. I'm going to read the scripture, and then we're going to talk about this. 20, John 20, 11. But Mary, that's Mary Magdalene, if you want to write that in, stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. Good idea, Mary. You finally looked inside. And what does she see? She seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they, the angels, say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back. She turns her back on the angels and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, what? Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where you have taken him, and I will take him away. I'd like to see that. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned. She does a lot of turning. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. I'm going to stop right there. So Mary arrived at the tomb for the third time. Remember, she had gone after he was crucified to see where they buried him. That was the first time. And then she had run there earlier that morning and made the wrong conclusion, and now she comes back for the third time. And she is in a, as you Southerners say, a pitiful condition. <laughs> she is a mess. I'm a Southerner too now after 50 years, right? Verse 11 tells us that she stood outside the sepulcher doing what? Weeping. You know what that word is in Greek? Greek? wailing. Have you ever been to a funeral where the women wail? Oh my, it is the most oh, heart-wrenching, depressing thing in the world. When my grandfather died and I went to the funeral, it was the first Greek Orthodox funeral I'd ever been to, and my, my aunts and all the women were wailing. <gasps> it tear your heart out. I couldn't stand it. I had a panic attack and I had to leave. I wasn't a Christian, and I was scared to death about death. My grandfather's death really got me all awake. You know, <laughs> That's what led me to the Lord eventually, but you don't want to hear that wailing. And that's what they were doing outside, you know, when um, Jairus' daughter died, and they, they hired professional wailers to come and wail. Well, that's what she's doing. Her heart is broken because she could not be near the Lord alive, and now she couldn't even be near him dead. Her tremendous sorrow... However, was the result of two things. One is a good thing. It was due to her deep affection for him. But the other was not a good thing. It was because of her disbelief in his resurrection, which really was disbelief in his promise, his prophesied word. If she had trusted his word and clung to his third-day resurrection promise, she would not be at the tomb filled with inconsolable grief, would she? You know, it is said that two-thirds of what we fear in life never happen. And two-thirds of what we weep over are tears that we shed in vain, that we didn't need to weep about. Her wailing was totally unnecessary. 
It was the result of her unbelief, her disbelief. And when unbelief has a grip on the heart, it will cause spiritual blindness. She could have realized the foolishness of her tears if she would have looked at the evidence that was all around her and if she would have remembered God's word, his promised resurrection, third day. So what was the evidence all around her? Well, for one thing, when she did stoop down and look inside the tomb, as John had done shortly before, she saw two angels in white sitting on the shelf. Now, who do you think they were? <laughs> Same guys, the tomb shelf and the tomb stone angel. They're, in, they're sitting on the shelf with the empty grave clothes between the two of them. One angel, we are told, sat where the Lord's head had been, and the other sat where his feet had been. Interestingly, she didn't go into the tomb. She stood at the, the door and looked into it. And yet, even after seeing two angels and the empty shell state of the grave clothes lying there in their undisturbed condition, rather than instantly believing as John had done, or even being affrighted <laughs> by the sight of the angels as the other women had, she doesn't even seem phased. Not a bit. She's not perplexed like Peter. You know, he went away scratching his head. Um, so I, I don't know. You know, evidently her grief was so intense that it put her brain into neutral. <laughs> she had brain freeze. <laughs> she wasn't even startled. She wasn't even startled by the appearance of the two angels. And so they didn't say anything to calm her fear because she wasn't afraid. You know, she just looks at them and... Instead, what they do is they ask her a, a probing question. They, 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 they're trying to get her to use her mind instead of being so overwhelmed by her emotions. So they ask her a probing question. They say, woman, <laughs> woman, my husband does that when he's mad at me, woman, why weepest thou? Why on earth are you crying, lady? And it's likely, I think, that they would have continued to talk with her, to converse with her, probably asking her, as they had asked the other women, why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here, he is risen, as he said. I think they would have gone on to tell her that, but she didn't give them a chance. <laughs> she went straight to her previous wrong conclusion, about things, and she again gave her false message. Except this time, instead of giving her false message to two men, she gives her false message to two holy angels. Can you imagine that? She explained that her tears were because they took away her Lord, and she did not know where they had laid him. I guess it never dawned on her how strange it was <laughs> that two young men in dazzling, brilliant white garments were sitting inside of a tomb with empty grave clothes between them. <laughs> I mean, you really have to have brain freeze. To, uh, this just, you know, she just takes it for granted. Okay, all right. And then I guess she didn't realize how preposterous it would be that someone would have taken the Lord's naked body and leave the grave wrappings in a totally undamaged condition. You know, the angels don't surprise her. The grave clothes don't surprise her. She's just, 
have you ever been there? <laughs> Don't admit it. <laughs> we all have, probably. Now, it's interesting that the two angels sat at either side. This is really fascinating. Have you ever thought about this? Anybody ever thought about this? You don't know what I'm going to say, but this will give it all away. <laughs> the angel sat at either end of where Jesus' body had laid. Mm -hmm. They were presenting a picture of the mercy seat lid of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And that beautiful. On the mercy seat sat two golden cherubim facing each other with their wings touching. Remember we in our Exodus study we talked about that? God told Moses that it would be there above the mercy seat between the two angels that he would meet with his people, which he did in his pre-incarnate Shekinah glory. It was all a prophetic, everything in the tabernacle was a prophetic picture of the incarnate Christ when God became man. He fulfilled all the symbolism of everything in the tabernacle, including the mercy seat, when he mercifully died in our place. And when he resurrected from the dead, he became the true meeting place between God and man. So it was very, very, very fitting that there were two real angels sitting at the head and the foot of the place where Jesus not only fully demonstrated who he is, but where in his great mercy he conquered great, man's greatest enemy, death. It was as though God, by way of the position of the two angels in the tomb, was saying, there is now a new mercy seat because my son has satisfied the payment for sin, and now the way into my presence is open for all who believe. Beautiful pictures. It was an amazing picture. But Mary missed it. Unbelief does not listen well, nor does unbelief see well. Another prominent byproduct of unbelief is ignorance. <laughs> a lot of ignorant people in this world, ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. She was ignorant because look at verse 13, she said, I know not. And then in verse 14, she said, she knew, it says she knew not that it was Jesus. She's standing right in front of Jesus and she doesn't know it's him. She didn't know where his body was when even his grave clothes evidence was right in front of her. She did not know where his body was when he was actually standing right in front of her, right behind her, actually. You see, unbelief emphasizes what we cannot know when God's word clearly tells us that we can know. We can know. Remember what it said in uh, John 8.32? You will know the truth. And what will it do? Set you free. And John finished his first epistle saying that you may know that you have eternal life. Anybody who said, if you say, are you saved? You say, well, I hope so. Why would you do that when you can know so? But she, uh, she was in ignorance. Unbelief emphasizes what we cannot know. 
Jesus had told his followers, and it included the women disciples to travel with, they heard this, ahead of time. He told them ahead of time, and he told them repeatedly um, so that they could know with confident assurance that what was going to happen. We can know with confident assurance what's going to happen. You know what? I have the end of the story, don't you, in your Bible? 66th book tells me what's going to happen. I don't have to just guess. I know what's going to happen. And everything is lining up just as God's word said. They could have had joy even in the face of horrific circumstances, and so can we. Even if you're sick with terminal cancer like our dearly beloved Barbara Bailey, or you know, whatever's going on, age and all that, and we know the end is coming soon, whatever, it doesn't matter. You can have joy in spite of it because there's a far better world ahead of us. But if people ignore his word and forget his promises and don't believe in his resurrection, they're going to wallow in ignorance and in the sorrows of this world. And I'm so glad I don't have to because, boy, would I be depressed with what's going on, even today. Mary Magdalene was weeping, wailing, because Jesus was dead and his body was missing and she would never see him again and she would never hear his voice again and she would never feel his unconditional love for her again. <sighs> Woe is me, pity party. But what was the reality? What was the reality of the situation that she could have known all along? What was the reality? Number one, he was not dead. Number two, his body was not missing. It had simply been transformed into a new glorified body. Number three, she would see him again very soon. Number four, she would hear his voice again very soon. And number five, she would know his unconditional love for how long? Forever. The only thing Mary should have been shedding tears about was her false message to Peter and John and to angels and the waste of money and time that she had spent preparing burial spices. If I'd gone to all that trouble, you know, I'd be, oh, I could have been knitting or something else. She was weeping for the wrong reason. She was weeping because the tomb was empty. Right? Isn't that why she's crying? She's crying because the tomb is empty. However, if it's because the tomb was empty that, and because the grave clothes were empty that she had every reason under heaven not to be weeping but to be what? Rejoicing. If that tomb was not empty on the third day following Jesus' death, then Mary and all the rest of us would have every reason to weep and to wail and to gnash our teeth and to be inconsolable for the rest of our lives. That's actually what people will do in hell, right? Because it would mean that God's word had returned void. It would mean Jesus' promised prophecy was false. It would mean that he disqualified to be the Messiah, Savior, Son of God, King of King, and Lord of Lords. And it would mean that we are still dead in our sins without any hope of ever being saved. Why? Because there never could be and there never will be another person who can or will meet every messianic credential and fulfill every messianic prophecy and have the power and authority over every realm of life and death as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Do you know that? If somebody appeared today, and there will be one, called the Antichrist, and they claim to be the true Messiah, okay, ask them what their credentials are. 
Were you born in Bethlehem, Ephrata? Oh, show me your genealogical record that you come from the line of David. You know, no Jew today can prove he came from, because the, all the genealogy records, genealogical records were burned when the temple was destroyed. And think of all the things, I mean, all right, let me see you raise the dead. Let me see you heal a man born blind. Let me see you restore a withered arm. Let me see you walk on water, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then you have to be crucified because you have to be pierced. And there is no such thing as crucifixion anymore. They might behead somebody, but, you know, no one can come along and ever fulfill all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. He alone can be the Messiah. We would be dead in our sins. Mary would be dead in our sins. And there would be great, great cause for weeping and wailing. So, but that's not the case. <laughs> so after Mary essentially said to the angels, I can't do anything but weep when my Lord isn't here and even his body is gone and I have no idea where they have taken him. She didn't stay around to listen to what those two guys might say to her in response. Now that's strange, isn't it? What if they knew where his body was? But she, yeah, she didn't wait to hear. She just immediately, it says this in verse thir, thir, uh, 14, she turned herself back. So she, you know, she looks down, she sees them, she, they say, why are you weeping? She tells them, they've taken my bo the body. And then she immediately turns away from them. So she didn't listen to hear what they would have said to her. This woman just is not thinking right. She is a mess <laughs> of distress and emotions. The angels likely would have told her if she kept looking at them and talking to them about the resurrection, but they didn't, probably because they could see behind her the one that she could not yet see, at least with spiritual eyes. And maybe she saw them looking at him behind her, which is why she turned from them to turn around to see who was behind her. And when she did turn from the angels in the tomb, there he is, standing right in front of her. Who? The resurrected, glorified Jesus. And she is the very first person, very first, to see him alive after his death, after he shouted, it is finished. She's the first one to see him. Now, can you imagine? Put yourself in, in her shoes, <clears throat> her sandals. <laughs> can you imagine looking into a tomb, and you see two holy angels in there. And then you turn around, and boom, there's Jesus. Can you, can you just imagine that? I, I know I'd go back into AFib. Uh, there's, the, there's the glorified, resurrected Son of God standing right in front of you. Don't you think your heart would just burst? And you would drop on your face before him? But Mary didn't. She is still so full of, of grief and disbelief and ignorance, and confusion, and brain freeze. Maybe she's on Percocet. I don't know. But she is still spiritually blind. She did not know that the angels were angels. And now she looks right into the face of Jesus, and she knew not that it was him. So what was the response of the first woman, the first person, to see the resurrected Christ? It was an absolutely defining moment, monumental occasion, an absolutely unsurpassed privilege. 
and yet she didn't realize it and she didn't appreciate it, at least initially. She didn't recognize him. Maybe he made himself incognito like he did with the two on the road to Emmaus. But surprisingly, she didn't recognize his voice either. When he spoke his very first resurrection words, I asked this when I made the announcement in church Wednesday, what was the first word that Jesus spoke in his resurrected body? Woman. Woman. <laughs> I'm sure it made all the men in the congregation. I'm just giving truth from the scripture. His, his first word was woman. What do you think his first word was when he was born? Mommy? Oh, I'm just guessing. Maybe it was daddy. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord's first words after his horrific death for the sins of the world were words of compassion? Woman, why are you weeping? You know, he asked that of, I, I cry sometimes for a lot of dumb things, don't you? And I have to remember, he's saying, woman, why are you weeping? Count your blessings. It's so typical of him. Did he not come to earth to bind up the brokenhearted? Also, is it not typical of him to begin a conversation with the question? Those of you who were with me for 20 years of studying the life of Christ through all four gospels in chronological orders, that's why we have eight volumes on it. Took me 13 years the first time, eight years the first time, 13 years the second time. I just get slower and slower. If I did it again, we'd be in heaven finishing. <laughs> but he always began his conversation with questions. That's just because it made people think, you know. He asked questions because it got them to examine themselves. So with his first question, woman, why weepest thou? He's really gently rebuking her. He's rebuking her because she had no business being weeping or wailing. She should have been delighted, not dismayed, that his tomb and grave clothes were empty. And with his second question, which was, whom seekest thou? He also was giving her a gentle rebuke. Uh, for essentially, it was similar to the question that the angels had asked that second group of women that morning when they said, why are you seeking the living among the dead? You know, who are you seeking? And this is a question all of us need to answer or think about in terms of what is important in our lives. What are we really seeking? Woman, you know, what, whom or what are you seeking? Are we seeking for life in dead places? You know, all the religions of this world are dead places with dead founders in their graves. Are you seeking and striving for the dead things of this world instead of the eternal living things? Are you setting your affection on things above, not on things of this earth? Are you redeeming your time wisely for eternity and not wasting it here on things that one day will be burned up? Is it the dead material things that take up all your time and energy and money? Is it the dead fame and fortune and power and prestige of this dying world that you're seeking? The sinful pleasures of this world, think about them, you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's definitely a search for life in dead places. Most people uh, seek for the um, dead things of this world. They're seeking life in dead places and in dead things. And nothing has a more dead end 
than disbelief in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. So the Lord's questions were good ones, good questions, but Mary didn't answer either one of them. Neither her eyes nor her ears had yet been opened because she doesn't recognize him and she doesn't recognize his voice. To me, it's just utterly surprising that Mary wasn't surprised. <laughs> it's weird. It's just weird that she did not get startled or afraid of the sudden appearance of a man behind her outside of a tomb that uh, had two angels in it. I mean, you know, if she had any sense at all, she'd be carrying a taser or something. She's out there by herself, and there's two guys in the tomb, and then she turns around, and there's a man behind her, and yet she's not surprised. I guess nothing much surprises a woman who had been possessed by seven demons, right? <laughs> nothing else could ever phase her again. Well, presuming, which she's really good at doing, um, am I on the right one? Oh, I'm behind. Here we go. Presuming that Jesus was who? The gardener or the cemetery caretaker, which is a good job. He is the caretaker of the cemetery. Uh, she, well, anyway, she ignored his two questions. And instead, she doesn't answer him, does she? Instead, she makes a plea and she says, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him and I will take him away. She spoke of him three times in that. If thou have borne him, tell me where you laid him and I will take him away. She says, him, him, him. And yet she never bothers to tell the gardener who she's talking about. Again, she's presuming he knew who she was talking about. Also, she makes a really foolish promise, doesn't she? She said she would take him away. Okay, she must have been a bodybuilder because there's no way that she could have carried off a man's body. Let's say, you know, he's 33 years old um, and probably weighed maybe 175 pounds, would you say? that Maybe that's average. Um, and then he's got 100 pounds of linen wrappings and spices on top of him, okay? So she says she's going to carry him away. Well, we know that the grave clothes were there, but basically she's saying she's going to carry. And the, well, okay, now that's weird too because the grave clothes are there, so she'd have to carry a 175-pound naked man out of the tomb or wherever they had laid him. So she's just being ridiculous here. Um, her devotion is wonderful. you got to commend her for her devotion, right? But her disbelief was causing her to give false messages, false promises, both false messages and false promises. It made her irrational, it made her blind, it made her ignorant, it made her illogical, it made her foolish, it made her impatient, and she was overwhelmed with sorrow and despair, etc., etc. A basket case. There is, however, a sense in which, as I just said, Jesus is not only cemetery carekeeper, a carekeeper, caretaker, but also the gardener. He is the master gardener, spiritually speaking, because with his next word, a single word, what did he do? He plowed right into the rich soil of Mary's heart, and the seed that he planted there instantly bore fruit, because Mary knew her good shepherd when he called her by name. The good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows them by name. And when they hear his voice, they recognize it and follow him. When he said, Mary, 
instantly the wails and the worries of that broken-hearted, confused little sheep ended. One word, and it was her name. And the depths of despair turned to unbound delight. Verse 16 says that on hearing her name, Mary, she turned herself. And here she is turning again. She's going to get dizzy with all this turning. It says, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say master. Okay, the words turned herself means that she had already turned away from Jesus. You get that? All right, she bent down, was talking to the angels, and didn't listen to them to respond to her, and she turned around and saw Jesus, thought he was the gardener, said some words to him, and then she turned back already. And when she turned back, that's when he spoke her name. Her back was to him, so she was not confused with his appearance, and all she heard was the voice of her good shepherd, and she recognized it instantly. Wow. So all her running and turning, what does that tell us? It tells us her nerves were totally on edge. So when she heard him speak, she only heard the voice, and she responded instantly. She knew, and she said, Rabboni. And then, you know, it goes on to say that she clung to him, but we won't get into all that. But she would never, ever be the same again. Jesus had delivered her one time from demonic possession, and now he delivered her from despair possession. I don't think that you and I can possibly comprehend the emotion and the spirit of the Lord's followers, like Mary and the other women, and especially his disciples, after he was crucified. Because we, we know what happened afterwards. So to put ourselves in their shoes at that time, it's very difficult. You know, they had depended on him with every fiber of their beings. They had been with him every day of their lives for some three years. So to put it very mildly, it was extremely unsettling for them to see someone so strong, so capable of doing anything and everything imaginable with his supernatural powers, like walk on water, raise the dead, turn water to wine, restore the blind, go on and on and on, someone so absolutely pure, someone so wise and kind and selfless, Remember when he washed their feet? Someone they were so confident in that he was the long-awaited Messiah. To see him being arrested and then led about meekly like a, a lamb, a sheep to the slaughter and beaten and mocked and ridiculed and tortured beyond human recognition and then nailed to a cross like a common criminal which biblically meant he was cursed by God, for cursed is every man that hangeth from a tree, so I could be the Messiah and be cursed by being hung on a tree. It was immensely unsettling. And then they also had the torment in their minds that they may have been wrong about him, which didn't make sense since he was so perfect and powerful, but they saw it with their own eyes. I mean, he died. He was buried, just like any mortal person. 
So to see Jesus fallen and lifeless, it shattered his followers, both men and women. It was depressing beyond imagination for them. But then, and here they are depressed. I forgot to show you. That's pre-resurrection despair. But when we contrast that with these same people seven weeks later, and they are publicly lifting up their voices in the very heart of the city that killed Jesus, and they're proclaiming the gospel message, and they're doing so amazingly in all the various languages and dialects of the, those that are the, the millions that are gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost or Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks, whatever you want to call it, and the apostles, those scared little guys hiding, are now out in the open. They're not afraid at all of being in the heart of enemy territory. And they're actually not on the defensive. They're on the offense. They're on the offensive because they're indicting the Jews for having wickedly delivered Jesus to be crucified. Read Peter's Acts 2 sermon. It's, focused on, it's all focused on Christ's resurrection. And we find that the once despondent disciples are joyful even when they're persecuted. They have a great party after they're released from heaven and they're just so happy to have been persecuted for Christ's sake. And they can't be silenced no matter what the threats or what the punishment. You know, do we obey God or man? Obviously we obey God. They couldn't be shut up. And they're, uh, they're just so happy. They're singing in jail and all kinds of things. In fact, they all go to their deaths except John as martyrs. So how do you explain such incredible transformation? Well, you explain it with their absolute conviction about the resurrection. All four Gospels accounts, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, end by testifying that the crucified, buried Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And John in particular, he spends two chapters on this, took great pains for his reader to explain to his readers uh, the tremendous changes in Jesus' followers. So in chapter 20, he presents four episodes that took place to create faith in his bodily re resurrection, beginning with his own personal testimony. John gives us his own testimony, what it took for him to believe in the resurrection and what we already talked about it. What was it? When he looked in and saw the empty grave clothes. Um, and then he gives us the account we just discussed. He gives us the account of Mary Magdalene and what it took for her to believe. She actually had to hear Jesus say her name. And then the third episode in that chapter gives us the uh, Lord's first resurrection appearance to his apostles, minus Thomas. Thomas wasn't there that day. This was Resurrection Sunday evening, afternoon. And how they became, because they thought he was a spirit, how did they become convinced it was him bodily resurrected? And so he explains that. And then the fourth episode happened a week later, and it is the record of what took place to persuade the skeptic. There's always skeptics, aren't there? And who was he? We call him Doubting Thomas, Didymus. You know why he was called Didymus? Didymus means twin. Ditto, he was a twin. There was another Thomas. <laughs> no, another, whatever his brother's name. Um, so these four episodes present different states of mind from different people. We're all different, aren't we? So we have the testimony of the pensive and the devoted John, 
You know, he was a thinker. He, he was a loving young man. You know, he's the one who laid his breast, uh, his head on the Lord's breast at the Last Supper. We have his testimony. We have um, a testimony of the completely <laughs> neurotic, emotional, overcome with sorrow, Mary. We have the testimony of the dedicated but fearful, the apostles. And then we have a testimony of the skeptic, Thomas. <sighs> so John was divinely inspired to record how each of those different personality types were brought to absolute, undeniable, rock-solid faith in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he li live. And then what did he say? Asked a question. Believest thou this? Do you believe that? There is much more proof that I haven't even given. I'll tell you another one. Change life right here. Change lives, probably every one of us could give a testimony. The resurrection is real. I want to close with a poem I wrote years ago called, O Glorious Day. When Mary of Magdala went to Christ's tomb and saw it was empty, she raced to the room, the room where his men, all hid in their fear, confused and despondent, their futures unclear. She arrived in a panic with a look of despair. They've taken the Lord. His body's not there. Both Peter and John ran straight for the door, neither expecting what joy lay in store. Young John was the first to arrive at the scene. He saw linen wrappings with nothing between. He thought for a moment without going in. And then his whole being burst forth from within. I must tell my brothers, the Christ is alive. I must let them know our hope's been revived. Oh, glorious day, he's done what he said. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive from the dead. Then Peter pushed past and saw what was there. But belief was obstructed by guilt and despair. They both left the tomb, and Mary came back. Though her love was abundant, strong faith she did lack. The tears in her eyes she need not have shed, for there in her presence stood life's living bread. Her grief blocked her vision from seeing the face of Jesus in bodily resurrected grace. Why are you weeping? Who is it you seek? Oh, Mary, look up. Is your faith yet that weak? The man she had thought was the gardener was he, her master who died on that horrible tree. Rabboni, oh, master, you're alive and you're here. I see you, I see you, I see you now clear. I must tell my brothers, oh, Lord, you're alive. I must let them know our faith can now thrive. Oh, glorious day, you've done what you said. You're alive. You're alive. You're alive from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray.
Father, Christ's resurrection, victory over death and despair not only broke the power of death for all of us who trust him as Savior because it provided the means for us to receive everlasting life. And because of his resurrection, we can know with absolute assurance that much greater things await us. We are destined to live forever in new bodies on a new earth in an existence that will be so marvelous that no matter what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that you have in store for us. Yes, we are destined in this present life to have our struggles and our trials and our sufferings and even death, unless you come soon in the rapture, but with belief in the resurrection, we can face life's difficulties with the conviction that no matter what, no matter what, nothing, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that nothing includes death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he asked the question which he asks everyone here today. Believest thou me? We know he doesn't lie, so we should believe him. He arose from the dead so that we can too. And I hope and pray with all my heart that everyone here, everyone here, believes him because it is true. We love you, Jesus. I ask that you go with every woman, put a hedge of protection around her, keep her and her family from the evil one, and may we all point to you this resurrection season and lead others, so many lost people, lead them to know the one and only Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.